Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Booklist called it brutal, unrelenting, and utterly compelling. This white hot short novel blasts through its hundred pages like a fireball stampeding through a tunnel. <laughs> the movie version, starring Joaquin Phoenix, is currently playing in theaters all over. In fact, there's a 9.50 p.m. showing right next door. Hint, hint. Uh, Jonathan Ames is the author of the novels A Paths Like Night, The Extra Man, and Wake Up, Sir, the graphic novel The Alcoholic, and the essay collections What's Not to Love, My Less Than Secret Life, I Love You More Than You Know, and The Double Life is Twice as Good. He's the editor of Sexual Metamorphosis, an anthology of transsexual memoirs, and has been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. He is also the creator of two television shows, the HBO series Bored to Death and the Star series Born Talk. We're incredibly lucky to have him with us this evening. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Jonathan Ames. Thank you, and uh, thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to um, I'm going to read from a couple of things. I'm going to read from the thriller "You Are Never Really Here," which is a bit dark, and I didn't know it was playing next door. I was thrilled to see the poster. Um, and then I, my, I'm not sure exactly what I'll read after that. I grabbed some of my other books that are funnier and lighter and might be a better way to end the evening. But uh, I'll start off with this. And then maybe at the end, depending on how everyone's doing, there could be a Q&A. People might be curious about the movie and things like that. And, uh, and then at the very end, if people like, I've reserved a, a room in the Dresden. And so if, if you, I might be here a little while, but if you go to the Dresden, and there's a little room right to the right of the entrance, and if you find a waitress named Edith, you can order a drink from her and it will be on me. If you go to the bar, you'll pay, you'll end up paying yourself. I, I, it was a, a negotiation that happened earlier, but find Edith and order a drink and it's on me. And just because when nervous, I, I feel compelled to speak backwards, and the name Edith backwards is Hittai. And uh, microphone is enough to Horkin. And uh, nervous is too awkward. Okay, getting out of my system. The system is Metsis. Okay. Um, so this is from You Were Never Really Here. And I'll, I'll read a few passages. And, um, and away we go. Okay. <clears throat> Joe felt something behind him. It was the presence of life and the coming of violence. And that anticipation, that sensitivity, enabled him to turn in time and catch the blackjack on his shoulder, which was better than taking it on the back of his head. Also, it was his left shoulder, and Joe was right-handed. And turning around completely, he was able to grab the man's wrist before the blackjack came down again. And they were face to face, the same height. And Joe immediately drove his forehead, like a brick, into the bridge of the man's nose, shattering the bone. And the man, his eyes blinded by red pain, began to fall, and Joe brought up his knee, 
brought it up hard, without mercy, into the man's jaw, breaking it. The man went down completely, strings cut, lifeless, but breathing. Joe quickly swung his head to the left and the right. He was in an alley wide enough for a car. He'd come out of the, his Plomp Hotel service entrance in the middle of the passageway, and no one was walking by or had stopped at either end. No one had seen. There was street light coming from the avenue, but the alley was mostly in shadow. Joe wiggled his left arm, trying to get life into it. The blackjack had numbed the whole limb, and he dragged the body behind a dumpster and quickly went through the pockets of the light coat, a blue windbreaker. The fallen was a pro, no wallet, no ID, just keys and a money clip with about $200. But there was a cell phone, so he wasn't a total professional. He didn't anticipate losing, and he didn't anticipate being hunted like Joe did. Joe never carried a cell phone. Joe looked at the blackjack, police issue, probably a bent cop from the Cincinnati suburbs doing a little moonlighting in the big town where his face wasn't known. Whoever had sent him didn't want Joe dead, not yet anyway. They wanted to bring him in, talk to him. There was probably a partner waiting in a car, waiting for a call. Joe would have been spooked by a car in the alley, so this one had hidden in a cove of the doorway. He'd sat Joe and call his partner. They'd throw his body in the car and bring him to the boss. That had been the plan. It didn't work. Soon the one in the car would come looking. Joe didn't want any more fights because he didn't win every fight. Joe figured they just wanted to know how he'd gotten to them and if others would follow and then they would have killed him. But he didn't need to take them all out because they wanted information. He was just one man, not the complete arm of justice. I did enough, he thought. The girl is damaged, but free. So he ran the opposite way down the alley, darted his head out fast, looking to his left and right. There wasn't a third man guarding that end. Nobody sitting in a car, nobody planted in a doorway, trying not to look like a plant. He stepped out into the street, started to walk. It was late October, and there was a sweet smell in the air, like a flower that had just died. He thought about a time when he'd been happy. It had been more than two decades. Then Joe spotted a green cab. He liked the cabs in Cincy. The cars were old, and the drivers were old. It felt like the past. He got in. Airport, he said, and he fingered the money clip. He'd give the driver a nice tip. It's the next morning. Joe lay in bed in his mother's house. He thought about committing suicide. Such thinking was like a metronome for him, always present, always ticking. All day long, every few minutes, he'd think, I have to kill myself. But in the mornings and before going to bed, the thinking was more elaborate. He knew it was a waste of time. He was going to have to wait till his mother passed, but he couldn't stop. It was his favorite story, the only one he knew the ending of, for sure. The past few weeks had always involved water. His plan of late was to slip into the Hudson at night during high tide by the Verrazano. The currents were strong and he would be taken out to sea. He didn't want anyone to be bothered with the body. Once, when he first got out of the Marines, long before he'd gone back to live with his mother, he had nearly done it. He had been processed at the Marine Corps base Quantico and ended up in a motel near Baltimore, drinking by himself for a few days and going, going to a movie theater, seeing the same three pictures over and over. Then one night in the motel, he'd taken a lot of sleeping pills and wrapped his head in a few layers of black plastic bags, duct taping them around his neck. He felt himself diminishing, a shadow around the edges of his mind, and he heard a voice say, it's all right, you can go, you were never really here. But then he clawed off the bags and pumped his own stomach. After that, the story never involved leaving a body behind, 
leaving a mess behind. That was shameful. When it was time to be removed, that's what it would be, a complete erasure. So the sea would have him. It wouldn't mind one more piece of waste. He had nowhere else to turn. He heard his mother downstairs and got out of bed. He did 100 push-ups and 100 sit-ups, his morning ritual. That, walking a great deal, and squeezing a handball as often as possible was all he did for exercise. He especially liked his hands to be strong. It was good in a fight. You break your adversary's fingers, you have an immediate advantage. It frightened even the hardest men to have their fingers snapped. And in a fight, like a dance, you often held hands. So his hands were weapons, his whole body was a weapon, cruel like a baseball bat. 6'2", 190, no fat. He was 48, but his olive-colored skin was still smooth, which made him appear younger than he was. His jet-black hair had receded at the temples, leaving a little wedge, like the point of a knife, at the front. He kept his hair at the length of a marine, on leave. He was half Irish, half Italian. He had a long, twisting Italian nose and eerie Gaelic blue eyes, set back and deep, Italian, but for their color. It was a mournful face, a self-involved face, with a thick forehead, another weapon, and his jaw was too big and long, like the blade of a shovel. When he, opened, when he passed security cameras, he tucked it in. The black baseball hat that he wore most of the time hid the rest of his face, which in its entirety was not ugly, but not handsome. It was something else. It was a mask he would tear off if he could. He was aware that he was not completely sane, so he kept himself in rigid check playing both jailer and prisoner. He put on pants and a t-shirt and went down to the kitchen for breakfast. His mother sat in her chair by the window in her house dress and slippers, waiting for him, patient and still, intent only on watching the door for his arrival. His plate was set. She was 80, very short now, and had the look of a Mediterranean widow. In Genoa, where she was born, she'd be dressed in black. The widows there, turning into nuns of sort, during the quiet, protracted ends of their lives. Her silver-gray hair was piled in a knot on her head, and she wore large glasses that took up most of her sallow face, which was round and sad. Her hair, uncut for years when set free, reached all the way to her waist. Joe had seen her once in the bathroom in her house dress. The door was slightly ajar, and her head was in the sink. She was giving herself a shampoo, and then she had risen up and thrown her hair back like a young woman and the hair snapped out in an arc like a long, silvery rope. It struck him as magnificent. She had been beautiful once. She got up slowly to pour his coffee and make his eggs. Behind her glasses, she looked at him with love, a slight flicker in her eyes, but she didn't smile. That look was the only joy in his life, and her only joy as well. They hardly ever spoke. I'll read one more little passage from this book. Um, so Joe gets an assignment to find uh, this girl who's been abducted and is in a brothel. And uh, he's uh, outside the brothel, and he spotted the boy who runs errands for the brothel, getting groceries and things like that for the women inside. And, uh, and now he's, he's nabbed this kid, a young man, to get information on the security inside. And, um, and just so you know that in this world, of this brothel where children might be kept, uh, which is rather dark, of course, such a uh, floor might be called the playground. And, and the, the young girl would have someone who looks after her called a big sister. And then Joe, once he retrieves the girl, is to take her 
her father at the W Hotel. It's probably too much information. Anyway, <laughs> so Joe is in the back seat of his car with this towel boy. Joe, having gotten all the information he wanted, closed his hand once more around Paul's throat and the carotid artery that led to his brain. Paul's eyes widened at the betrayal, and Joe counted to ten. Those, those ten seconds seemed rubbery and strange to Joe. Looking at Paul's face, he had a vision of sorts. He saw Paul entering a bar, catching his reflection in the glass of the door, and quickly running his fingers through his hair, since he never liked how he looked, and how Paul felt in that moment, without being able to put words to it, that everything in his life seemed to fall short. Then Paul was asleep, not dead, and Joe lowered him down gently across the back seat, checking his pulse and his breathing. He smoothed Paul's hair, as Paul had in the vision, and like a god, he looked at Paul with tenderness. He imagined Paul's little apartment somewhere, his mean, unmade bed, his private place where he worried over himself, where he went to hide like an animal. Joe knew that all human beings are the star of their own very important film, a film in which they are both camera and actor, a film in which they are always playing the fearful and lonely hero who gets up each day hoping to finally strike upon the life they are meant to lead, though they never do. He then taped Paul's head and neck to the seat and put tape over his mouth, cutting a little slit for breathing. He bent Paul's knees and taped his legs, his heels to the back of his thighs, like he was roping a piece of cattle. He didn't want Paul to wake up and make a fuss, kicking at the window. Then Joe got out of the car. It was time to get the girl. He came through the front door of the brothel as the guard from the kitchen came into the hall, having seen Joe on the monitor. He didn't reach for his gun, which was a mistake. He was big, 6'5", a linebacker's body. He was about 20 feet from Joe. Who the fuck are you, he asked. His meaty head was shaved. It was gleaming and ugly. Joe sprinted at him, the hammer raised. The guard, the guard scared by the hammer and scared by Joe, fumbled for his gun, and Joe was on him. The hammer struck him on the cheek, on the neck, and in the center of his back, where he felt it deep in his lungs as he went down. The, Joe then kicked him on the side of his pink razor-nicked head. Joe was good at damaging people without killing them. He'd been in the house less than 10 seconds. The stairway was to his right. He took it two steps at a time, and the second guard, a squat and powerfully built black man, appeared at the top of the stairs, mystified by the noises that had come from below. Joe came right at him with the hammer, backing him up, and hit him on his collarbone, snapping it. The guard stumbled back into the hallway, and Joe, swinging the hammer like a baseball bat, sent it into the man's breastplate, and he went down. Joe kicked him in the head, and he was out. Then a John in pants but no shirt emerged from the bedroom closest to the fallen guard, and Joe hit him in the shoulder with the hammer, crumpling him. Then he kicked him hard in the stomach to keep him quiet for a while. The man, like a bug trying to swim, scratched at the floor in agony. No one else emerged from the second floor bedrooms, so Joe took the stairs to the third floor. He wasn't worried about any of the Johns or the prostitutes making cell phone calls. At all times, even when not working, Joe carried a jammer in his pocket. They were cheap, only $150, and blocked cell phone reception in a 20-yard radius. He had started using them when he moved back in with his mother. He liked to ride the bus sometimes on Queens Boulevard and stare out the window, but he couldn't stand listening to everyone on their phones. He went to the playground for Paul's instructions and opened the door. In the glow from the hallway, he saw a man's back like an enormous white tumor, it was grotesque, arched, and pistoning. He could make out the girl's ankles on either side of the man's fatty white thighs, 
but that was all he could see of her. The man turned, looked at Joe, his eyes full of rage. How dare he be disturbed? He was paying good money for this. And Joe struck him in the face with the hammer, knocking him off the girl and sending him sprawling. Joe then grabbed the man by the arm, tossed him to the floor, and sent his steel-toed boot into his testicles, exploding him. Then, then he kicked him in the head to stop his screams. The girl was lying inert on the bed, her head to the side, her lips moving. Her legs were still open. She looked like a torn apart doll. Joe leaned his face close to hers to make a positive ID and to hear what she was whispering. It was barely audible, but she was counting. She was in the 700s. Her eyes were open but glazed. Then her big sister, a skinny diet pill blonde, wearing a silk robe, came into the room. She saw the bloody unconscious man on the floor, his groin looking like an animal's that's been skinned. What's going on, she asked, inanely, hysterically. Joe, seeing that she carried no weapon, advanced on her, grabbed her elbow violently and said, get her dressed, fast. He saw clothing on a chair, a Catholic schoolgirl's outfit, a tawdry cliché. The big sister was in shock, but she got the girl out of bed and into her skirt and blouse and panties, not bothering with the white stockings or little black shoes. Joe took a sheet from the bed, wrapped the girl in it, and carried her past the men he had left on the ground, down the two flights of stairs, and out of the brothel. At the top of the stoop, he peered up and down the street. No cop cars. With the girl light in his arms, he moved quickly to his rental. About six minutes had passed since Joe had gone in. He put the girl on the front seat. She was out of it, but not completely. He dragged Paul out of the car and left him on the sidewalk. He dropped the bloody hammer in a sewer, started the car, and headed for the W Hotel. He glanced at the girl. Her face was against the window. Her lips were moving. She was still counting. It's her way to get through it, Joe thought. She counts until it's over. So that's all I'll read from You Were Never Really Here. small passages uh, from other things. I don't know if I'll read from all these books because it is hot and it's a Friday night and all that. And it's always best not to go too long. Um, okay, just need a little water. I am uh, sweating quite a lot, but we're all human and you understand. <laughs> okay, um, so just to, so it's a little briefer so you don't have to sustain too, you know, it's nice to do short things. I'm going to read, uh, wow, I'm really sweating. And, <laughs> okay, I thought someone was going to pass me a napkin, but. Uh, <laughs> I hope it's not too distracting. I'm like, uh, what's Albert Brooks in that? Do you have a napkin, Paul? Broadcast news. <laughs> yeah, broadcast news. I'm really, this is what happens when I eat spicy food. As a redhead, if I put anything with chili, I, I become like a fountain in Paris. Just, uh, <laughs> Okay. Um, all right, much better. All right. Uh, so this is from my novel, The Extra Man, and this is about um, a young man. He's a he's a he, he wants to be a writer someday, and he lives with a politically uh, incorrect uh, older playwright, a Walker, an extra man. I won't go into all of that. And they live in New York in a very tiny apartment. And uh, the narrator is just uh, Louis Ives has just prepared some food and. His uh, roommate, Henry, whose apartment is, is in the other room watching TV, a very tiny apartment. So this is, uh, Lewis is his narrator. 
Oh God, there's a cockroach on my food, I bellowed. What? said Henry. A cockroach on top of my spaghetti. You forgot the first rule of survival in this apartment, said Henry, without sympathy. Never leave food out. You didn't teach me that rule, I said. You should have learned it before coming here. Don't enlist, don't enlist in the military if you're not prepared to fight. I threw the pasta away and the cockroach, since I am unable to kill anything directly, even cockroaches, with which our apartment was infested, though none had ever been so brave as to mount my food. After dumping the pasta, I boiled some more water, water and started all over. Henry from his couch told me to wash my dish and added that I should always wash my dishes before eating. He explained to me, teaching me some survival rules after all, that our cockroaches were walking all over our plates while we slept, leaving behind an invisible trail of germs. So we were to wash our dishes before eating as well as after. He came into the kitchen and rinsed the plate to demonstrate his special two-step method. <laughs> First hot water to get rid of the cockroach germs, he said then cold to get rid of the lead from the hot. Otherwise you die. New York has lead in its hot water. That you might not have learned in New Jersey. Henry looked at me intently to make sure that I understood the lesson, and then said, hot for cockroach, cold for lead. Hot for cockroach, cold for lead. I got it, I said. Well, don't catch on too quickly. That's the problem with staff. Once they know what to do, they leave. It was a backhanded compliment, but it made me feel good. He didn't want me to leave. Here's another little passage from The Extra Man. Uh, okay, I think it's self-explanatory. Um, the next day was New Year's Eve and it snowed. We stayed in all afternoon and watched a series of Danny Kaye films on the classic movie channel, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Court Jester, and The Inspector General. Henry warmed up some apple juice on the stove and added rum, and we sat on the two couches and got drunk. I said to Henry, do you think we drink too much? Men face reality, women don't. That's why men need to drink, he said. That sounded like a good maxim, so I enjoyed my drink and the movies. And it turned out that we both loved Danny Kaye. This made me feel happy. I kept an accounting of all our similarities, like money in a bank. After the second Danny Kaye movie, Henry said, Whatever happened to Danny Kaye? It's strange. He just disappeared, and it was before AIDS. You mean Danny Kaye was gay? I asked. Of course, said Henry with annoyance. He and Olivier were lovers. Olivier, too? Why don't you know these things? asked Henry, exasperated with my innocence. I'm not an expert like you on the sexuality of 20th century figures, I said, fighting back. You don't have to be an expert. Olivier was British, and the British are all homosexual because of public school. They never really get over it. I know, you've said that before. Well, some things need to be reinforced. I can't imagine Danny Kaye and Lawrence Olivier, I said. Oh, yes, said Henry, with assurance. Opposites. I tried picturing them in bed. Who played the woman, I asked, phrasing my question in 19th century terms that I thought would appeal to Henry. Danny Kay, I imagine. He could do a lot of accents. That way, that way Olivier could have a different woman every night. So that's from the extra man. Since that went over well, continuing in, in that vein, I'll read from my uh, novel, Wake Up, Sir, which is another narrator, not unlike the narrator of The Extra Man, but his name is Alan Blair, and he's working on a novel at an artist colony that's like, just like The Extra Man, except it's called The Walker. And 
And the reason why that happened is I found these passages from the extra man that I hadn't included. And I was like, oh, God, I've got to repurpose this. So I'll make this the novel that this guy is working on. So this guy named Alan Blair is working on a novel, and he's at an artist colony, and he's got a valet named Jeeves. So the Woodhouse fans that will mean something to you. But so he's at an artist colony, basically sort of has a butler. And what you're going to hear here is a passage that he's just written of the novel that he's reading to Jeeves. So now I will read it, and then you'll hear Alan and Jeeves talking. So this, it'll sound just like the extra man, oddly enough. <laughs> so this is the passage from the book that this other narrator is working on. <clears throat> I wish I was a member of the Yale Club, I said to Charles. He was sitting on the blue couch, which was also his bed. I sat on the white couch, crossing my legs at the knees. So many of Fitzgerald's stories take place at the Yale Club, I continued. Be romantic to have a club to go to for a drink and meet friends. I'm sure the Yale Club is destroyed, said Charles. They probably have women members. The best clubs don't take in women. The best clubs are still fascist holdouts. Randall Chatfield, an old fruit, resigned from the Players Club because they took in women. He wanted them to take in boys. The Explorers Club is good, but you have to be an explorer. <laughs> it's probably silly of me, though, to fantasize about clubs as these romantic places, I said. I don't really want to be a member now, but a member in the 1920s, when Fitzgerald was around. The problem with that is, if I went back in time to the 20s, I couldn't be a member since I'm Jewish. Well, if you can go back in time, then you can also change your religion. I would think that time travel gives you great powers, but I wouldn't want to change my religion. Then stop whining, said Charles, admonishing me, and stop romanticizing about clubs. They didn't take in Jews. You have to accept this. It's the way things were. In the 20s, the best hotels used to have signs, no Jews, Negroes, or dogs. And this upset many people. They like to travel with their dogs. <laughs> so that's the passage. And uh, Alan has just read, but now we're going to be discussing it with Jeeves. <clears throat> and maybe this will be the last thing I read. Anyway, um, that took about an hour to produce, fixing the dialogue, getting it just right. When I had it at a somewhat acceptable level, I called for Jeeves. He insinuated himself back across the hall. Yes, sir? I read in the day's efforts. Very good, sir, he said when I had finished. You think so, Jeeves? Yes, sir. You did pick up Jeeves that I'm trying to subtly address the racial question and the Jewish question and some hint of the homosexual question. Yes, sir. You touch on these matters in a most subtle way. There are so many questions, Jeeves. Have you noticed? Yes, sir. There are also a lot of problems. The monogamy problem, the mind-body problem, the designated hitter problem in baseball. <laughs> Naturally, I'm most curious in a self-centered way about the Jewish question. For the Nazis, it was what to do with us. But for me, the Jewish question is, why are we hated? An exceedingly difficult question, sir. We Jews would like, of course, to figure out how not to be hated, either changing ourselves or changing the haters, but maybe we just have to accept that we're hated, like they advocate in AA, that you have to accept your alcoholic. So we Jews just have to accept that we're hated and move on. I wonder if there's a 12-step group for Jews to help us work on this. Well, I guess that's what the synagogue is for, which makes sense since most AA meetings are held in churches. So Jewish AA, which I guess is just Judaism, is held in synagogues, and instead of 12 steps, you have 10 commandments. Perhaps, sir. Well, in my book, Jeeves, I'll simply pose these questions. I won't come up with any answers. But that's all right because you don't have to be conclusive in novels about the human condition. When you write the Declaration of Independence, or the Constitution, or directions for brain surgery, then you have to be firm. But with novels, it's enough just to ask the questions. 
People don't expect too much from literature. They just want to know they're not alone with being confused. And astute observations there. Now it's upsetting to me, Jeeves, writing that bit about the Yale Club and Fitzgerald made me think how most writers I admire hated Jews, including Fitzgerald. They shouldn't publish people's letters. Inevitably, you spot the anti-Semitic remark from one of your heroes, and it breaks your heart. Oh well, even if Fitzgerald was anti-Semitic, I still say The Great Gatsby is the great American novel. People keep talking about The Great American Novel as if it hasn't been written yet, but it has, by Fitzgerald. It has everything American. Money, sex, cars, liquor, forging a new false self, prose like cocktail music, New York City. What do you think, Jeeves? You make a convincing argument, sir. You know, Jeeves, I'm not trying to write the great American novel. My ambitions aren't that far-reaching. But maybe my book will be the great New Jersey novel, since it's about me leaving New Jersey for New York, but always knowing in my heart that I would return to New Jersey someday, as I did when I moved in with Aunt Florence and Uncle Irwin in Montclair. Maybe that will be the end of my novel, moving to Montclair and having Uncle Irwin shoot me. It'll be like the end of The Great Gatsby, but instead of a pool, since they don't have one, he could shoot me in the tub because I'm wasting hot water. <laughs> I'd like to be killed at the end of my novel. You think that's too morbid, Jeeves? All tragedies end in death, sir. I do intend for it to be comedy, but maybe the ending could be tragic. Very good, sir. Okay, I'll read one more little passage from this book. maybe some questions and then I'll make a sound at the end. Anyway, so uh, this one morning Alan is very hungover and um, he's talking to Jeeves. I just want to say, Jeeves, that I think the word I is the saddest word in the English language. To me it means failure, disappointment, heartbreak, and death. Nothing good comes of being an I. Know what the saddest word in French is? Je. I don't know any other words for I. Wait, yo is I in Spanish, but yo doesn't sound sad. Maybe that's why Latins are in a good mood most of the time. It is the German one. My grasp of foreign tongues is better than I thought. It sounds like they're disgusted with themselves. Maybe that's why Germans are so insane. They do seem to be better lately, though. I don't think they'll give the world trouble again, but you never know. Almost all peoples have a dark period, though theirs was very dark. America's in a dark period right now, since we're leaving the way and boiling the oceans and killing everything. Even the Scandinavians were sort of perfect. Clean streets, good health care, active sex lives, had a dark period, a brief Viking phase. But since then, they've been very well behaved. Very good, sir, said Jeeves. Well, I think that's all I'll do tonight. I might have read uh, from the Los Angeles Review of Books, I wrote an essay about my dog, and it's called Yet Another Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name, and you can, that, you can find that in the Los Angeles Review of Books, and then I was going to read an essay from this book, What's Not to Love, uh, for the scatologically minded, and it was going to uh, be called I Shit My Pants in the South of France, but it's pretty hot here, and I've probably read for about 25 minutes at this point, but, um, so, before I... Uh, make this sound, um, you know, which I'll explain in a moment. Um, does anyone have any questions? Uh, I'm good with um, psychosomatic pain. <laughs> uh, I can answer questions on that. Um, baseball statistics. 
Okay. Any questions, perhaps, about the film? Well, first of all, how did uh, the uh, uh, Lindsay get to your novel? How did that happen? Okay, the question is, uh, how did Lynn Ramsey get to my novel? Uh, it's a little bit of an interesting story. I originally wrote this book, uh, You Were Never Really Here, as an e-book uh, for something called Byliner. And then it was translated into Fran French, France, <laughs> and uh, published as a small crime novel in France, and also came out in England as a uh, crime novella. And so this French uh, film producer read the book, uh, and it was, got great reviews in, in France. The French love noir and red wine and cheese and all sorts of great things. And, um, and she got the book to Lynn Ramsey. And then Lynn read it, contacted me, and then we corresponded over the next two years. And, you know, she sent me multiple drafts of the script. And, uh, and then now uh, this fantastic movie has come out, which is right next door. Just two little things that are sort of interesting. Um, when I was corresponding with Lynn over like a two-year period, she was in Santorini, Greece. And in, I think, 1990, I'd gone, gone to Santorini uh, with my girlfriend at the time. We were riding mopeds all over the island. It was very beautiful. And then we stopped on top of this hill, and there was this little uh, house, and there was a gate just a, a little bit open. And I stopped the moped, and I looked in, and I saw this ancient woman in dressed in black uh, by a cistern, and she was dunking her head in the water and then threw it back, as I described Joe's mother, like this silver rope, and the, and the sun was there, and the blue Aegean, and I never forgot that image of that silver rope, and so then I'm corresponding and Skyping with Lynn, who's in Santorini, I said, you know that image of the mother with the hair? That's right where you're living, so that was one thing. And then another thing, uh, just like this towel boy in the brothel. Uh, so that image I saw in 1990 and then put in a book 20 odd years later in this crime thriller. And then in 1993, I had a little writer's room where I was working on this novel, The Extra Man, on 48th Street between 3rd and 2nd Avenue, a, a section called Turtle Bay. This older, wonderful couple gave me a bedroom that I could write in because I didn't have a room with a desk. And across the street was Kurt Vonnegut, and he would sit on his stoop smoking cigarettes. And then on the street also, this fancy street, was this um, mysterious building, which my friends who gave me the writer, my writing room told me was a brothel. And it had these like metal shutters, and it was near the UN, and so this was like this high-end brothel. And so I was intrigued by it. Then one day I'm walking down 2nd Avenue, 1993, and I run into this guy who I knew from downtown. He's got like two bags of groceries. And I'm like, hey man, what are you doing up here? You live around here? Because no one I knew, you know, lived above 14th Street. And he goes, no, don't tell anyone, but I'm a towel boy at this brothel on 48th Street. I'm like, oh my God, that is a brothel. So I never forgot this notion that there was a guy called a towel boy, you know, who ran errands. And so this became the towel boy in the book that I then put in a book. I saw that in 1993, first wrote this in 2012. And now you'll see a towel boy in this movie in 2018, right next door. So just. That's sort of interesting. Uh, 25 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, one more question or two? Yes? You obviously write with great humor. Um, how do you explain you were never really here? Mm -hmm. and, and did you start with character or did you start with the premise of the, the playground rock? Um, the question is since I usually write with humor or comedically, how did I come to write something like that? Um, well, I, I got uh, this friend of mine, Amy Grace Lloyd, who I uh, dedicated the book to. She had gotten this job at Byliner, 
And she said, Jonathan, I've got some money, we've got some nice word count, you want to write a piece of fiction? And I've been reading nonstop Page Turner's thrillers, primarily the novels of Richard Stark, who wrote 24 crime novels about a character named Parker. Many of them are here, and I love uh, that series. And so I wanted to write something like that, write in the third person. And I think I began with the character. I, I saw him in an alleyway, and then I, I was staying in Fire Island in a little cottage, and I think I'd seen a hammer around, and I just had this idea of him using a hammer. Um, and so it was just wanting to write the kind of books that I enjoyed reading. When I was a teacher of writing, uh, I would always tell my students, not the Hemingway thing, write what you know, I would tell them, write the kind of books you enjoy, because what you love, what you absorb, then you're sort of learning, and then perhaps you can give that back to the world, you know, as a way of saying thank you. Um, so I wrote that out of my fascination with the page turner. There's a question over here. Yeah, so in a lot of your work, I've seen that I'm obsessed with the nose. The obsession with the nose, yes. Either your own or the woman. Uh, okay, the question. I thought my peripheral vision is pretty good, like a, like a feral animal myself, but I saw this hand to the right like that. Um, we all have abilities that we're unaware of. Uh, so the question is, he's noticed that in my writing I have an obsession with the nose. Um, well, I think... As a kid, I felt like my nose was too big. I would look in the mirror, I hated myself, I thought I had this big nose, and then I, I kept getting it broken. I was attacked by a, a, a disturbed child. I was about six, he was eight, and I was walking along the lake by my house. I uh, was pretending to be Spider-Man. I had a sweater, and I pulled it over my head, and I was walking around by this little pond I grew up in, and then suddenly I was shoved from behind. I thought it was my sister, and then because I was still in my mode of Spider-Man, I went racing after this fleeing back, and I thought, wait, that's not my sister, but I'm like, well, I'm still a hero. So I ended up going to, you know, caught up to the kid. Next thing I know, he's on my chest and pounds me in the nose, breaking my little six-year-old nose, bled terribly, went up to my mother, and I was wearing this sweater, and she thought it was mud, and this was a sweater we'd gotten in Israel. And she said, you're a sweater from Israel! Like, you know, I'm like, I'm just attacked by a child. Don't worry about my sweater from Israel. And then, and then I was a voracious, I admit it, nose picker. Even touching something like this reminds me, you know, to hide one's snots on such surfaces. And one time I was picking my nose so madly when I was 15 watching football that I struck a vein and began hemorrhaging. And I had to be rushed to, like, some doctor who put some soldering thing on my nose. And he said, you could have died from that nosebleed. And I told my family that I bumped into a door, but I just been picking madly. You know, it still happens. And now, like, there's so much staph infection and bacteria out there, do not put your fingers in your nose. That's a public service now. <laughs> staph infection mainlining it. Um, maybe one more question? Yes? Um, I saw the film last night. I thought it was amazing. I was curious what your, um, how you would characterize the differences. Like, where do you think it brought new territory into the story or whatever? Um, yeah, I, did everyone hear the question? So the question is, where do I think, what differences or? Yeah, or? like how, how, what territory within the, the concept of the narrative did the movie get before that you saw? Yeah, well. Because um, I haven't read the book, so I don't know. Yeah, well, I think the movie is just brilliant. Um, and I wrote to Lynn, um, I feel like what she did is she read the book many times <laughs> until she almost forgot it and was in her system. And, and, then she, and then through filmmaking took these things that are internal 
whether it be, you know, the information I give about Joe in his past, she did it all like in these flashbacks, these fragmented flashbacks. And then one thing I had conveyed to her from the beginning is that I wanted to write something that I called an entertainment in the Graham Greene sense of it. And she was very much an art, an art house cineast. And, but I, I was just like, let's see if, you know, try to make it an entertainment though, gripping, you know, bring all this painterly quality that you have, but still make it, you know, I like the film Taken. You, you know, I don't think I referenced that, but I wanted the movie to have that sort of urgency of these kind of entertaining films. And, but she also takes her time. I love the, how she's able to capture the character so quickly. And, and Joaquin is just unconscious in the film. He seems completely unaware of the camera, of acting, and it's just a fantastic movie. Uh, one thing that I like that she did, I thought was amazing, for example, there's a scene later in the book where there's, uh, give some part away, there's two men, two assassins in his house and Joe, and, and the narrator describes how Joe knew this house because his father had been very abusive. He knew the house like his own skin. He knew every sound. So he was upstairs, he'd snuck through the window, and he knew exactly where these two men were in the house, as described in the book. And the way Lynn did that, while he's on top of this landing listening for the men, she does a flashback to like his childhood legs tiptoeing on the same landing to convey what's in the book. Um, so I just think it is masterful. The music's incredible, the editing. Those of you who know filmmaking, like every frame that she does is un unique. You know, she does, you don't feel like you're watching the way everything, most things are directed. Um, and the ending is different. I had sent her, I'm working on the sequel. I had sent her at some point the first 10 pages of the sequel. And I've said this before, I cannot pronounce the word sequel properly. <laughs> It's just like, it sounds like a sea quell, you know, something beautiful in nature. But, um, so, I, uh, anyway, that informed her ending. Her ending is, is different, as you'll see. I ended more a, a cliffhanger, but my, the new book I'm working on will continue where my book ended just a few hours later. So, uh, now just to, so just to remind you, uh, there will be books for sale. I'll be signing them. And anyone is welcome down at the Dresden, like I said, and some people may have come late, there's a little area right off the entrance to the right. If you go in there, find this woman, Edith, and at least two or more drinks around me, I really don't care. And um, I've gone through a description of the secret, which has to do with don't worry about money, sort of. Anyway, um, and, uh, so everyone's welcome to a drink, and before I, I let you go, um, those of you who know me, uh, I often end my readings or other gatherings with this uh, childhood sound known as the Harry Call. It's kind of a cry for help. It's uh, a sound my friends and I would make on the playground when being attacked by more normal children. And I say that every time. Um, but just to explain how it began, uh, I was in the fourth grade learning how to read. And back then you would have these headphones on, these big blue headphones, and there'd be text, and you would hear, you know, a voice in these headphones describing the text. And then one day this boy across from me named Jonathan Fat Eater, uh, the last name is Eater, E-D-E-R, not Eater, E-A-T-E-R, but Eater, but we called him Fat because he was chubby. And um, we called him Fat Eater, and he was the son of a chiropractor, so he had a lot of energy from being adjusted all the time. <laughs> And, uh, and he had very expressive hands because he was a bit of a prodigy piano player. 
And so anyway, this one day he takes off his headphones out of the blue and goes, like that. Just out of nowhere, this little purr came out of it. A little Buddha purr hit me in the third eye. I was like, whoa. And the boy next to me named Francis Manziano, who uh, we called Manzi, I took off my headphones and I said, what was that sound? Make that sound again. So again, he went, like that. I was like, whoa. And then and we were like, we love that. And then the teacher sensed that something creative and inventive was happening. He said, put your headphones on. So we said, let's talk about that sound over lunch. So the three of us began talking about that sound, began making it to each other. And it was very healing for me. I, like I said, I know a lot about psychosomatic illness. I, I had back spasms as a child, so I was wearing a corset that nobody knew about. This is what a doctor had prescribed in the 70s New Jersey, a very Victorian cure. And I had an elevated left testicle. I was a mess in the fourth grade. But we began to make this sound. That's how we would communicate with each other, going, <laughs> and it conveyed a lot of things. We call each other, Gee, what's up? Like that. And, and all the sounds had different meanings. And then the sound got very loud. Like I said, when we'd be attacked on the playground, Manzi and I were a little bit small, and so Fat Eater might be off somewhere. And so when we'd be attacked, we'd make the loud sound that I'm about to make. And Fat Eater would come running. And like I said, because he was the son of a chiropractor, he knew how the human body worked. So he'd kick people in the ankles and tip them over immediately. And then the, the attendants would bring him to the office, and we'd walk alongside him, consoling him in the language of, like that. And we called this going hairy, because this was the 70s, and, and hippies were crazy. So if you're going hairy, it meant you were crazy. And the whole uh, act of going hairy was hairiation. And we were the hairy eaters. And uh, so the cry for help is known as the hairy call, H-A-R-R-Y. And I'll now do three. Send you off into the night. Get a book. And, or meet me at the Dresden, friends and strangers alike. And so three hairy calls and the movie's next door. OK. <laughs> And thank you, Skylight. I haven't been here in years. I mean, I come here all like every other day. I buy the Pema Showgrown books like crazy. I highly recommend them. Uh, all right, three Harry calls. Listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.